Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 20. Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, will begin this morning in, in verse, verse 9. And this comes on the heels of what we considered last week, and, and Matthew's account affirms likewise his same order that the previous encounter that Jesus had with the with the critics, with the, the group that came forth from the Sanhedrin to come and to question Jesus regarding his authority. In other words, what by what right are you doing what you're doing? Where are your credentials here? And so on the heels of that encounter regarding his authority, Jesus here begins to somewhat assume the initiative. And as we read in Matthew's account, he he gave a parable of the the man who had two sons, and he had the first son, he assigns him something to do, and the son says, I will go, but he doesn't go. And then the second son, he assigns his son to do, and his son says, I won't go, but he repents, and he does go. And Jesus makes application, which we just read, that, well, certainly the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they will enter into the kingdom of God before you. Oh, religious men, religious Pharisees, religious leaders. And so we can rest assured that this following parable will have likewise a stinging indictment against the religious leaders because of their impenitence, their refusal to repent in light of John's ministry when John the Baptist came preaching the message of, of baptism of repentance. And their unwillingness to submit to his ministry and to his message. Begin reading with me here in in Luke chapter 20 verse 9 through 19. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine, vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time... He sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust well there's some there's nothing like a good story is there well like stories that's why uh, in modern literature 
such a hot seller novels even in even in Christian bookstores, you can go and just a high percentage of the books that are, full, are filling our Christian bookstores are novels, stories. They sell. People like novels. People like good stories. We tend to like especially those that have a point. Those that have a moral. Something you can read the story and you can read it and you can say, Aha! I get what he's trying to say here. There's something to be gleaned from this. And certainly, there's no one who could tell a story like Jesus. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing Him tell His, his stories, tell His parables? And here we have a parable which is called, for reference sake, is often called the parable of the wicked tenants. The wicked tenants. And we find in actuality, as we, as we look at this story this parable that Jesus tells, it's a summation, a summary of God's redemptive work throughout history. Of what God has been doing in particular in relation to a people that He has called to be His people. And also, the sin and the evil of those people. So as we look at this text today, I think it's a, a safe thing to assume that God gives us here a perspective on sin. A perspective on sin. How God sees sin. And in light of that, how we ought to consider sin. Now I know I could say, what's your perspective of sin? And you'd say, oh, it's bad. Right? And we could even ask our kids, what's sin like? Ooh, it's bad. It's something that we don't want to do. But I think we just need to realize that we fail to see how sinful sin in fact is, don't we? How sinful is sin? And so God's story here reveals to us His perspective on sin so we must carefully hear this story and give heed to, to what he, how he instructs us here. And the first thing that we see about in considering how sinful is sin. The first thing we see here is that sin is against immeasurable grace. That when we commit sin, when men sin against God, and in particular those that are revealed to us in this parable, they sin against immeasurable grace. Now, as you look at this story, you look at this parable, we understand that not all of the parables can be allegorically interpreted. In fact, there's been a lot of damage done to interpreting Christ's parables because people have insisted we make these, these analogies. So this item in this parable must be referring to this. And for many of those, there's no biblical warrant for that. However... Some of the parables we know are allegorical in their nature. Jesus gives some of those. The parable of the sower. He tells us this is what the seed represents. This is what the soil represents. This is who the sower is. As we come to this parable of the vine growers, or the parable of the, the wicked tenants, there are some some allegorical features. Now, we need to be careful that we don't try to press every detail 
of a parable that has some merited allegorical features and try to press as everything in that has to have a actual reality that it represents. We can't do that. We can't press an allegory here and an allegorical interpretation of a parable too far. We must be careful. We go to those things that largely, unless it's explained, we go to those things that we can look at and it's pretty easy to see. Anyone should see this and reading or giving some serious thought to it. And so that's the approach that we take in interpreting this parable. But there are some allegorical features of this parable that we can very easily discern. We can look at this parable, for example, and see that Jesus is portraying God Himself as the owner of a vineyard. He's the owner of a vineyard that has been leased out for someone else to care for and he has gone on a long journey here. That's the, the owner here of this vineyard. Now such an imagery would not be unusual in the thinking of the people that Jesus speaks to in His day. They would recognize that idea. The idea of there being foreign ownership of large estates. Very common in the upper Jordan Valley. And the western and northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And portions of Galilee themselves. That there were foreign owners of these properties. And so they would live somewhere else, but they would entrust the care of these properties to the local people. So this is an imagery, again, that the people would hear this and they say, yeah, we can identify with this. Care given to, to the locals. And there was a stipulation there that at harvest time, part of the produce that was received from the, from the crop would go to the land owner. We would call it sharecroppers. The people who were the local people, they benefited. They could, took care of it and they received the benefit. But the owner, likewise, was expected to receive a portion of the, prod, of the produce that came forth. So God here is portrayed as this landowner, this owner of the vineyard. And the picture here that's presented, when you have the idea of this, this one, of this landowner, this husband one, that he's a very thoughtful He's a very wise, he is a very careful and a very capable individual in providing for what is needed for this, for this crop to succeed. Every detail has been covered. The provision for every aspect of what these vine growers would need has been met. And that clearly would parallel the abundant graces of God toward His people of Israel. That God has provided for them. He is thoughtful and He is wise and He is capable and He is compassionate. And so God has called the nation of Israel. He called them His own people as a testimony of His goodness to those whose God is the Lord. Be a testimony as recipients of the goodness, the good things, the grace of God. But also the nation of Israel was called to be the agent of God's blessing to all the nations of the world. What did God say when He called Abraham? By you, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. You're the agent your people, Israel, is the agent by which God desires to pour out His blessings to all the nations of the world. 
Also, the nation of Israel, those they are recipients of God's covenant. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, those who have been entrusted with the oracles of God. God's revealed will as given to us in the Old Testament scriptures. They had the word of God given to them. And the nation of Israel was the channel of God's redemptive work throughout the Old Testament age. What God is doing in His redemptive work throughout the Old Testament age is happening through, through the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. That's the channel that God has ordained that He would use. Now, what's the reason that God has chosen Israel? Why these people? Why did He choose Abraham and his descendants? Is it because of any virtue in them? Well, look with me very quickly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. And the fact of the matter is, when they, how many were there when God called them? One. Abraham. There wasn't a people. And at that point, He didn't even have a, have a son. Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His righteousness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him with, to their faces to destroy them. He will not, delay, will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And then we see over in Deuteronomy chapter 9. So first of all, in Deuteronomy 7, he didn't call them because they were anything great. It's not because you were more in number than any other people. You were, in fact, the fewest of all people. But over, over here in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse, beginning in verse 4. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven, out, driven them out before you. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Don't think that. Don't think that you've received the abundant blessings of God based upon your righteousness. Because of the good things you have done. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. I mean, reading this verse, it's almost like you could read that and say... God's primary purpose here is to bring judgment upon the people who are there. You just happen to be the agent that He chooses to use. Verse 5, It's not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. So why was it? Why did God choose Israel? Was it because they were great? Was it because they had, they had established themselves as such a people that God saw them and thought, now that's the group of people I would like to have my name attached to. I mean, don't we do that? We think that way, don't we? You know, let's gravitate to those who are great already and get ourselves some way attached to them and hope that, you know, in the minds of others, 
we must be great too. Right? We think that way. But nor is it because of their own righteousness. Their hearts are wicked. He says, don't think this is because of your righteousness. If anything, you think it's because God is a just judge and He is bringing judgment upon the sins of the people, the inhabitants of the land. That's why He's chosen you. He wants to execute judgment. And you're the agents by which He desires to accomplish that. So grace, all of grace that the that the nation of Israel had received. And the grace continues as this parable here reminds us. It wasn't as though that God on one occasion set, upon, set aside the people of Israel and, and let them go their own way. But as the people of Israel would continue in their sin. To continue to walk away from the ways of truth. That God would send forth His messengers. He would send forth the prophets to, to call them back. To ever call His people back to repentance. Call them back to their love to God. And so he would send these prophets time after time after time, multiple, as his, even as his landowner sent multiple slaves to, to benefit from the land, God's patience, God's grace in sending these waves of prophet after prophet with nothing else to those people. But thus says the Lord, here's the word of God for you. God's calling you. Grace after grace after grace. And then in this parable here, the landowner says in verse 13, verse 13, what shall I do? He's been he's had his previous slave sin. They've been rejected and abused. Verse 13, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son and perhaps they will respect him. And this is where, you know, you can't make every detail fit the reality. But we understand here that this is a very clear picture of God sending his son. His beloved son. God so loved the world that he gave his son. So it parallels the Christ his first coming. And what was that? What was Christ's coming? If the, if the coming forth of the prophets was a grace upon grace granted by God to the nation of Israel, as He would send these prophets time after time after time, calling the nation of Israel to repentance. When Christ came, it was nothing less than the golden opportunity. Here is the perfect opportunity. If you haven't seen it before, if you haven't responded to my grace before, here it is. I'm sending my son. If there was ever an opportune time to repent, it's now. And what do they do? They kill him. They reject him. He is taken, thrown out of the vineyard. And what a parallel of Jesus Christ crucified outside the gates. After wave after wave of grace has been granted to Israel. So the message here is very clear that the sins of the nation of Israel, the sins are committed against immeasurable grace. The grace of God that has been poured out time after time after time after time by the sending of the word of God time after time through the prophets and then through the living word himself in Jesus Christ. The grace of God. And it was rejected. 
And certainly there are men who would scoff at God and who would scoff at his Christ even this day and do so against immeasurable grace. To have a knowledge of the true God. To hear the message that God has given to us. The message of repentance. To have seen God's provision of salvation and deliverance through His Son, Jesus Christ. Through His work, what He has accomplished. What grace! And we live in a society here in the West that has been saturated and supersaturated with the message of the gospel. And people continue to scoff at this message. And we do so against immeasurable grace. But it's easy to point the fingers out there in the world. But we need to realize, folks, that there are church people in church week after week after week. And they quietly and respectfully reject the call to repentance. They quietly and respectfully reject Christ. And then, what about those of us who are the people of God? And we can look out at the world and we can say, man, people sin against such grace given to them in in this day when, when you have the gospel so readily available and so many have heard and never responded. And we can look out and say, how can they continue their life of sin? And then we have to look inside as the people of God and say, with all the grace that has been demonstrated to me as a child of God, how is it that I so easily sin? That I'm so easily drawn again to sin. Why is it that I come week after week after week after week and I have to confess sin? Why can't I look back and say, oh man, this week was better, I didn't sin. Folks, as the people of God, we need to understand that when we sin, we sin against immeasurable grace. How do you measure the, the, the amount of grace that has been bestowed upon us in Christ? That we have grace imparted in us through this work called regeneration. What an abundant grace that we have new hearts. We've been transformed. We're not fighting this battle of sin from the outside. trying, But it's from the inside. The Spirit of God dwelling within us. We've been justified. We've been delivered according to Paul in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. We've been delivered from the power, from the reign, from the rule of sin. We say that we're empowered by the Spirit of God to think and to live biblically. Folks, what in the world are we doing when sin comes so easy? We sin against immeasurable grace as the people of God, don't we? How do we measure that? So let's be a people that we make no excuse. There's no excuse for my sin. Make no provision. But we utilize every grace that is needed and that is found in Jesus Christ in this battle against sin. Because we sin against immeasurable grace. Secondly, we see how sinful is sin. That sin is of inconceivable gravity. 
it is of inconceivable gravity. Jesus is telling this parable. And it's as though he captures the minds of the Pharisees and his listeners with this parable. And they're just all of a sudden as they're hitting, they're talking about this story, the story about this landowner and he's, he owns this vineyard and he's done all these things. So he, he he's built this wall, you know, he's got all these things that he's done to make provision there. And you know, you could be thinking, man, if I'm called to be a tenant or a vine grower here, that's the kind of place I'd like to be. That sounds like easy easy picking. Because he's done everything. And then to hear the, the response, the attitude of these tenants toward this landowner would be in their hearing, even in their hearing, even in the hearing of men as carnal and as natural thinking as they were, that would be absolutely unthinkable. That they would treat the owner and his slaves and ultimately his son the way they've treated. And evidently the case seems to be that as they, the master is, this owner has sent these slaves to, to receive and they've rejected anything back, that's unthinkable enough. And he sends his son. The thinking seems to be like this. Here's the heir. The heir here to this vineyard they wrongfully conclude the owner the, who's put us to work here must have died. So if he's dead, this is his heir who's come. We kill him. Who is there left to take the vineyard? It's ours. That's the thinking that seems to be going on in this parable here. And in Jesus, as he tells this story, he asked them, according to Matthew's account, he asked them, what, what happens here? And the Pharisees, you know, they're caught up in this thing. They're hearing this story. They're hearing about this master, this landowner. They're hearing about these tenants and the, the horrible behavior. And they hear this and Jesus says, well, what will come to you? And so Matthew's account, Matthew 21, 41, they give the answer. They said, you bring these wretcheds to a wretched end to destroy them, they be killed. There's no punishment that's too evil. They deserve whatever they get. Bring these wretches to a wretched end. And you take the vineyard, you rent out that vineyard to others who will pay the proceeds at the proper seasons. According to Matthew's account, they gave that answer. How can one conceive of such wickedness, such wretchedness, and how is the gravity of their sin appropriately considered? None, even these here, the enemies of Christ, none would have conceived of, would have conceived of such evil perpetrated against this landowner. They said, you just don't do that. How wicked these people are. But the clearly intended parallel here is this. Such is the guilt of Israel. This is what... You have done. That's the parallel here as Jesus brings history into a parable. They are the murderers, the rejecters of the message of God through the prophets, 
They are the murderers of his son. He here speaks of prophetically because it hasn't taken place yet, but it's going to. The murderers of his son, of his Christ, of Jesus himself. In such an attitude and acts of arrogance against God would think we ought to be. That's unthinkable that anyone would ever act toward God with that type of arrogance. And the rejection and the hatred and the murder of Jesus Christ then is of inconceivable gravity. How do you measure how grave, how serious an offense this is? But for believers, how grave a matter our sins must be. When we disregard grace and when we embrace those things for which our Savior has died, when we hold dear to our hearts sin, those things that we simply will not part with. What an attitude of arrogance, and it is of inconceivable gravity. It's a matter to be regarded with great weight, great thought. There is no justifying excuse to those who are own, those who own and those who are owned by God, Christ. So when we find ourselves tempted to sin, that we be a people who regard our sin in its worst light. That we see sin in the e- as evil what it is. That we see sin as not, oh, this is just a weakness in my personality. This is just the way I am. This is, this is what people of my temperament are just prone to. It is sin. How serious is that sin? If it be sin, God regards it serious enough that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for it. It's pretty serious. Inconceivable gravity. It's very serious that we think about sin, that we refuse to make light of our sin, refuse to make excuse for our the remedy for our sin has demanded the life of Christ himself. And finally. See here in how sinful is sin that we see that sin is to irreversible grief. Sin is to irreversible grief. What end might be anticipated for those who are guilty of such sin as those who are guilty as what's been advanced in this parable and they're speaking of the reality. Well, the Pharisees, they heard the story. They gave the answer which we just referenced there in Matthew 21, they should bring these wretches or brought to a wretched end, rent out the vineyard to others who will pay the proceeds at the proper seasons. They've got it. Didn't they? 
These people need to be removed. They need to experience retribution, punishment for what they've done. They need to get what's coming to them and they need to be replaced. Does someone come here and take care of this vineyard that will take care of the vineyard and but also will recognize their responsibility to the to the landowner? So it's much like <clears throat> I was talking with, with Neil about this message that we just referenced, Neil referenced that it's much like when Nathan, the prophet, came to David after David had taken Bathsheba and, and had Uriah killed in battle, come guilty of murder, adultery, and any number of sins that would go tagging along with that. And Nathan comes with his little story about the man who has a little ewe lamb that's almost like a child to him. He takes care of it. And this wealthy man who has all kinds of sheep comes and he takes this one and he, he kills it. He takes it from this man and kills it so he can have it for a, a feast. You know, and David's response, we know what that was, don't we? Man, how he goes. Judgment. Death for this guy. Just let me think of something worse. Give me a few minutes. I'll think of something worse to lay on this guy. And then Nathan, you're the man. You know, it was easy for David to respond as he did to Nathan's little parable. When he thought it was about talking about somebody else. Because we're much more quick to see the sins of someone else and at the same time be blind and oblivious to the sins of our own heart, our own lives. Let me give you a suggestion here. If you find yourself finding the faults and the sins of, of someone else, and they seem to be just huge in your mind, let me give you an exercise to do. Ask God to begin to show you how you're guilty of that same sin. There's never been a time that I haven't been in that position, that I haven't prayed that prayer. That God has not absolutely laid me flat before Him. As I began to see the sin of my heart. And the judgment that I'm casting upon my brother or my sister. And I'm guilty of the same thing. Do it. You find yourself obsessed with the sins of your brother or your sister. You just go before God and say, Lord, show me where I'm guilty of the same thing. He will. Every time. And so Jesus, He comes with this story. And the Pharisees, they take the bait, don't they? What should happen to these people? Boy, the Pharisees, they're ready. Pounce them. Get them. Get them out of there. Justice upon them and replace them with someone else. And then it's like somewhere along the line, it clicked. He's talking about us.
He's talking about our nation. Our heritage. And so, somewhere in the mix here, we don't know exactly how all this fell in place. We have the, the accounts. There's no contradiction, but it's not clear. Again, it's the order of how things just Luke does abbreviate in his account here. But somewhere when it clicks, verse 16, they hear it and they say, May it never be. No, King James, God forbid. Uh-uh. We know what you're getting at. We ain't go, we're not going there. No, 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 no. The story doesn't apply, Jesus. May it never be. May our actions and our attitudes toward you never be compared to the attitudes and the actions of those wicked tenants. You can't make that comparison. Who do you think you are? He's the beloved son. May the suggestion that God's kingdom privileges be taken from us and given to another May that very notion perish. May it never be. And we actually find in the account we read there in Matthew 21, that's exactly what Jesus said. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Just like you said it ought to happen. These people need to be removed and the vineyard entrusted to someone else. be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. May it never be the very notion that the kingdom of God and the benefits, the privileges of being the people of God will be taken from Israel. May that notion perish with you. Never happen. I found out perhaps about a year ago that those of us who are reformed and covenantal in our theology, we've been tagged. We have a name given to us by those who are not reformed and covenantal. <laughs> we are called reformed, um, we are called replacement theologians. That we believe the blessings and the promises that were given to the nation of Israel have been replaced with the church. Let me tell you why I believe that. One of the reasons I believe that. Because of what Jesus said here. I'm taking the kingdom of God from you. And it will be given to someone else who produces the fruit of it. And the notion that the Jewish people remain as the, quote, people of God is foreign to Scripture. 
that the promises that God has made to the Jewish people are fulfilled either literally or better in the church of Jew and Gentile, of those who are in Christ. The church, the church is the entity of the people of God. Have the promises of Israel been applied to the church? Yes. Will the promises made to the Old Testament people of Israel be applied to the national Israel at some other future time? No. They will not. The people of God are the people who bring forth the fruit of repentance. And as long as a person, whether it be Jew or Gentile, is not repentant, I don't care what his stripe may be, he is not. He is not a part of God's people, God's chosen people. So if you ever hear the name replacement theology, I plead guilty. And I don't call it replacement theology. I call it fulfillment theology. I call it biblical theology. But I'm not going to run from it. But we need to get, get clear in our minds. This is what's said here. The kingdom of God has been taken from you. And they even realized they deserved it. They got it in the parable. Hope you don't mind me chasing that little rabbit, but I just think it gave itself to it here. What was Jesus' response here? I said, this, this can't happen. No way does this happen. No way is the kingdom of God taken from us. We are God's chosen people. God's covenant people. <laughs> Jesus says, don't you remember what the Old Testament says? Verse 17. What then is this that is written? And he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. So what does this verse mean? In the Old Testament, in in Psalm 118, the the immediate picture there is it's speaking of the nation of Israel. But Jesus takes that and says the ultimate fulfillment of this verse is me. Listen. You reject Christ. You reject Christ. You are not in any form or fashion God's chosen people. So he says, the stones which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. That which the builders rejected as unsuitable, God says, is the one that is supreme. He is Lord. And what's the result? Verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. What does he mean? Two things. Who falls on that stone. Those who stumble over the prospect. Those who stumble over the notion that Jesus is God. You're going to be broken to pieces by that stone that you reject. The stone will be unchanged. You will be broken. Or on whomever that stone falls. In other words, there's a, a future point. 
when Jesus acts as the righteous judge and he cast his judgments down, the stone falling will be scattered like dust. Point being this, in life or in eternity, you stand in opposition to Jesus Christ, you reject Jesus Christ, it will destroy you. It is a sin of irreversible grief. There is no going back. And so those who would diss the notion of Jesus as being the Christ do so to their own peril. Peril. He is Lord. He is God. So if one would boast of morality and boast of their good deeds and boast of their kind acts, remember this, all of those things, if you reject Christ, then all else that you do matters for nothing. You know, Jesus gave a striking story here, didn't he? And it absolutely gripped his hearers. And the application was, and the parallels were painful. I wonder what Jesus would would compare us to if he were to give us a parable of the church today. What kind of a parable would he tell about the church today? Here's how I want you to see yourself. I suspect it would be quite painful. The difference as the people of God that it would bring us to repentance and brokenness. Here, it led to anger. Ready to, if they could have then, they would have taken Christ and killed him. But they feared the people, verse 19. Not time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Father, we confess that we have seen, even today, very little of the sinfulness of sin. Against your grace, how serious a matter it is, I know the consequences if we do not repent. Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, that whatever imagery you might consider today to give in parabolic form a a story that relates to the church of this day. Oh, Father, we cannot help but think that it would be painful. An indictment against us. Oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, O oh God, whereas your people that we have not we have not regarded sin as the evil for which it is. And we have not loved you and adored you and exalted you as the God for who you are. And as we come to your table, Father, we ask that you administer to us. O oh Lord, we come this morning not in righteousness of our own, not in perfections. We come as those with an alien righteousness given to us by you in Christ your Son. And we come as the people in need. And meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.